0: This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. Hey
1: everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM.
2: Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take a
1: seat.
2: Aye, sir. You will obey. It is the word of Landru.
1: Joy to you, friends! Welcome to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show about the original Star Trek series. This is a show where we dive into the characters, concepts, cliches, and other things that don't start with C about the original series. My name is Drew, or Landrew, and I'm the TOS editor for the network. And with me today is my co host Mike from Commentary Track Stars. Hello. And Mark Cushman, writer of These Are the Voyages, the behind the scenes book that Gene
0: Roddenberry wanted you to read. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it.
2: Happy to be here. Love talking to you guys.
0: So, Mark, you were with uh, me and Max on Commentary Trek Stars, in which we talk about your book in great detail, and people can, can go over there to check out that. But um, for people who aren't familiar with the book, what exactly is These Are the Voyages?
2: Oh, it's the, well, I hope it's the book to end all books on the original Star Trek. Uh, it's uh, all three books are going to be about 1,700 pages total, and we take each season one at a time for each book. So this first book is season one, and do about uh, 15 pages on each episode that takes you through the whole writing process of each script with all the memos from Roddenberry and his staff going back and forth, and then the production diary for each, so you know what was filmed where and when, what went right, what went wrong, and then the ratings and uh, the reviews that came out, and the whole thing. So it's a little bit of a, a time machine that takes you back and you can watch the scripts being written, being filmed, and that first broadcast on NBC.
0: And I've read the book, and I know that Drew is is working through it right now, and I think we're both in agreement that it is an amazing read and definitely worth checking out. If anyone is listening to this show about the original series, then you are going to want to read this book because it is well worth it.
1: I love I love that I'm only like 100 pages in, and the show hasn't even been picked up yet. <laughs> like, this is just... I mean, he's, you've got behind the scenes stuff of Desi Lou and NBC. I mean, just little bits. But I appreciate that. It gives you. And you know why I you... did
2: that, guys, is because NBC. I wrote these as a biography. It's like a biography of a TV series. So I treat Star Trek as flesh and blood. And you see it go through its career, in a sense. And Desi Lu and NBC are both uh, very important characters in the development and the life of Star Trek. And so I felt we needed to know a little bit about them to appreciate, for instance, with Desi Liu, to appreciate that Lucille Ball put her studio on the chopping block, in a sense, uh, to get Star Trek on the air and ended up losing her studio because of Star Trek. And NBC, for, what, four decades now, four and a half decades, has been painted as a villain, and in many ways they are. (laughs) But also you'll find out Stan Robertson at NBC and a few others, were very deeply involved in Star Trek with each episode uh, Stan Robertson being the production manager would write memos on each episode and making suggestions of what the network wanted to see and didn't want to see and and some of his suggestions are quite good and got into the episodes so he's he's uh, never really got credit and now he does
0: so one of the things uh, that, that's super cool about this book is how um, really after reading it, you never look at any of these episodes the same again. There's always, you know, you have such a, a knowledge of what went on behind the scenes that you really can't help but appreciate the craft even more than before. And I'm sure that you unearthed a ton of of stuff, you know, during during the research and things that uh, people may think are good or bad or or, or may not necessarily have been. What was intended by the uh by the creators, so we're gonna kind of look at that today um l- looking at uh three three different episodes from three different angles I guess so to start, what is an episode that the producers of the show felt really turned out the way that they wanted it to what which one uh was was sort of like uh, most fulfilling to them, or, yeah, I guess you could say.
2: Well, you know, obviously the most fulfilling one would be The City on the Edge of Forever, but uh, that's been talked about quite a bit, and, and there's no, uh, nobody has a bad opinion on, on that episode. But but one, one that uh, they really liked, uh, that doesn't get talked about as much as I think it should, is This Side of Paradise, uh, which was one of the first Star Treks I ever saw when I was... Uh, A boy and first got turned on to the show and I was just really hooked when I saw that episode and I think it has Everything in it that makes a good Star Trek episode and in going through all the memos and and uh, talking to the people who were involved in making it But going through the memos in particular uh, This is one that they were very proud of and I think the reason they were so proud of it is because it was a struggle uh, well, they were all a struggle as you'll see reading the book. It's it's amazing they got any of these episodes made and on the air. But uh, that one in particular went through a lot of interesting changes to turn into what we finally ended up seeing.
0: It, it was really kind of like one of the the first Spock episodes that really dealt with, you know, him and his his lack of emotions and stuff like that when you think about it.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I would say it's a third. Um, uh, John D.F. Black, who wrote, wrote the forward for this, this book, and is a good friend of mine, is, um, wrote The Naked Time, which was nominated for a, a Hugo Award, one of the first episodes produced and one of the first ones aired, where Spock gets that disease like everybody else on the ship and confesses uh, that he never was able to tell his mother that he loved her. So we find out a lot about the character there and see that side of him that he hides of course, Galileo 7 was another big episode in the stepping stone in the development of Spock where he's, finally, he's forced to be in command and has to deal with that uh, and whether he's capable of being in command or not since he doesn't have uh, what a commander needs, what Kirk has, which is the ability to gamble and take a chance and uh, take a risk and, and be a true leader Uh, where Spock always approaches everything logically but this is this side of paradise was a terrific episode for Spock because it was the first time we saw him experience positive emotion not a scene where he's in the briefing room crying over not being able to tell his mother that he loves her but seeing him laugh and feel joy and fall in love and so it it really did a lot in in uh, promoting the character of Spock and in endearing him in our hearts And that's one of the reasons I love the episode. And it's a great Kirk episode, too, as they all were. Uh, In the memos, as you read the book, you'll find out Gene Roddenberry was very determined, as the entire staff was, that Kirk was the protagonist of the series. So every episode, even if it seems to be a Spock episode, is really a Kirk episode. And in that one, it's Kirk trying to deal with losing his crew, being abandoned by his crew, and losing his greatest asset, Mr. Spock and how he's going to deal with that and get that back. So it's it's really a very strong Kirk story, but it's a fantastic Spock story.
1: So what was it that the, the producers liked about it so much?
2: Well, I think what, here, here's the fun thing in, in, for me in researching this, reading the memos, interviewing Gene Roddenberry uh, when I did back in 82 and again in 89 and 1990, and I'd been hanging on to those interviews for a long, long time, and interviewing Bob Justman and Dorothy Fontana, who wrote the script, and Ralph Sineski, who directed the episode. And wh- why they all love that episode is because of what they were able to do in that, meaning uh, creating silk from a, a sow's ear, in a sense, because the original script written by Jerry Soule, who ended up taking his name off the episode, uh, it was, uh, I believe the name he used was Nathan Butler on that one, but uh, Jerry Soule was a renowned science fiction author and he wrote The Corbonite Maneuver earlier in the season, and this was his follow-up assignment. Uh, it was a very problematic script, it just wasn't working, and it wasn't Spock who got shot by the spores. I mean, everybody gets shot by the spores, including Kirk, before the episode's over. But it was Sulu who falls in love. And it was uh, NBC's idea and Bob Justman and Dorothy Fontana, Dorothy Fontana primarily, said, no, 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 let's make this Spock. This has to be a Spock story because the drama will be so much greater if it's Spock. And they all admired George Takei and knew he was a good actor and he could certainly, they wanted to give him a good story. But if you think about it, seeing Sulu fall in love is nowhere near as interesting as seeing Spock fall in love. And, and that terrific uh, melancholy ending, uh, the poignant ending at the end where, where Spock wishes he had never gone through it because he had never felt that kind of pain before, the pain of falling in love. And then feeling that joy and knowing that he cannot feel that joy again which was really stunning uh, for me when I was a child watching it and still as an adult when I see it again. So when you can take something that's not quite working in script form and change it and turn it into something that fantastic, uh, that's when an artist can feel the most proud. And I think that's why they all like that episode so much.
0: Yeah, it is kind of crazy to think of anyone other than Spock in in that particular situation because, I mean, I can see why... It would impact someone like Sulu, but that would not be noteworthy at all. That would be pretty much a nothing episode if if it weren't for Spock.
1: It'd kind of be silly, like you know, oh, silly Sulu. He fell in love with somebody. I mean, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd feel for him at at that point.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and it's it's sad for George Takei. I mean, they, he had a lot of terrific moments in Star Trek. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> running around with a sword and the naked time and the evil Sulu and Mir Mir and freezing to death on a planet in the, in the uh, Enemy Within. and So they, they gave Sulu a lot of fun things to do throughout the run of the show. But uh, it was frustrating for the uh, the supporting regular characters, uh, actors, because they, uh, they would see a first draft script that would come along, and they would see this terrific role for them. And then the script would go through its rewrites, and it would come back, and it's not their part anymore. But as you guys just said, and you're very right, uh, you know, it's... It's just a much more interesting story when you take a character who's never been in love before and has, has is determined not to be in love and watch him go through this. And, and really, this is a fun thing about Star Trek, guys, for me, and I think you'll agree and your listeners will agree, is you watch these things and you can connect to them. You can, you can apply these little morality plays to your own life and the human condition And we all related to Spock because we're all like Spock in many ways. We all try to stay in charge of our emotions and not embarrass ourselves, and uh, especially teenagers when they're not sure who they are or who they want to be in life and they've never experienced love before and then suddenly they're noticing girls, young guys (laughs) noticing girls. And everything that was fun for him before, everything that meant anything to him before in his life suddenly has no meaning because he's noticed a girl and he's fallen in love. And then to lose in love. You kind of wish that you could go back to the more innocent times in your life when you didn't care about women. So you can watch something like this and completely relate to what Spock is going through. And if it had been Sulu or anybody else, we wouldn't have had that, uh, that effect that it had on us.
0: So through the writing of this book, I'm guessing that you've probably read all of the drafts of, like, all of the episodes or something like that. Did you read the early stuff with with Sulu?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, Gene was fantastic. Roddenberry, uh, when I met him in 82, I was interviewing him for a a TV special here in Los Angeles. And, uh, uh, And I saw this immense collection of material he had that he had kept, which most producers don't, most TV shows don't. And he had every outline, every treatment, every first draft, every final draft, all the notes that went back and forth between him, himself, his staff, the network, the censors, the uh, fan letters, the whole bit. And that's why I wanted to see these books written, because I thought, oh, my God, like put all that stuff in. A book would be fantastic. And we got a taste of that in the, uh, the Making of Star Trek, which was written in 1968 while the show was still in production. But I wanted to see that done for every episode. So I I kind of said, gee, you should put all this in a book, and is that why you saved it all? And he said, no, I saved it all so somebody else would put it in a book. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you would like to. And I said, I'd love to, and I interviewed him, and and the more I interviewed him and the more I read of these documents, the more I realized that this was going to take years. And I just couldn't do it. Back then, I, I was busy writing in television myself and directing and so forth. So it took a lot of years for me to have the time To sit down and do a project of this type and as a writer it it was such a, a thrill and an education to go through all these memos and see them communicating with each other about how to make the script better and we can't afford to do that so we got to take that scene out unfortunately but maybe we can do it in some other way that we can get it done within our budget or get it past NBC so they don't freak out and say it's too sexy or too strange or whatever, and and uh, so it's fun seeing the scripts evolve and, and then see the reaction of the actors when they would receive the scripts and how the productions would go and all that. So it, 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 it was a great joy for me putting all this together and wanting to share it with everybody and then being able to watch the episode again, watch all these episodes again, but we're talking about This Side of Paradise. So you watch it and you know everything they went through, not in just writing it but in producing it And you know how many people were watching when it came out. And so it kind of you get to watch it through new eyes, which is a lot of fun, too.
0: So just slightly off topic before we go on to our next uh, episode. But throughout reading all of these drafts and everything like that, is there one which stood out to you personally where you read the first draft and you were like, oh, man, I totally wish they would have done that instead of what was actually on the air?
2: Yeah, with uh, with This Side of Paradise, uh, I, I thought all the changes were so much better and, and took it in such a better direction. And same thing with The City on the Edge of Forever, same thing with the Corbonite Maneuver, almost every script, but there were a few where uh, it, they they got worse and if they would have shot what they originally had, had it would have been a better episode. One of them is The Man Trap, and you're right, this is getting off the subject of of the couple episodes we thought we might want to talk about, but uh, uh, I think The Man Trap, uh, the way George Clayton Johnson wrote it, was better than uh, the version that Gene Roddenberry wrote that went on the air. And and that was a rare uh, occurrence, because uh, Gene rewrote all the early scripts, the first 16 or so episodes were written more by him than by the writers who got their names on the screen. Uh, they would do the first couple drafts and then Gene would rewrite them uh, and John D.F. Black as well. And John D.F. Black really was the one who wrote Mud's Women. And Gene was the one who wrote just about all the other of the first 16 episodes until the the series started airing and writers could see what it was about because those early scripts, the writers were working off of just seeing the pilot. And the pilot didn't even have all the uh, regular characters in it. it, didn't have Dr. McCoy and, and so forth. So as a writer, how can you write for characters you haven't seen? So, you know, as the show progressed through the different seasons, it got easier for the freelance writers to know how to do it. But in the early stages of that show, it was Gene Roddenberry rewriting all these scripts. And Mantrap, uh, George Clayton Johnson's version, had a little more heart to it and a little more of a somber, sad, poignant ending than uh, what Gene Roddenberry ended up uh, writing and putting on the air. And uh, the same thing happened with um, The Alternative Factor. Um, man, that would have been a good episode if they had made the changes they did. Um, and and uh, so that, that, that's kind of maybe we can segue into that because uh, this side of paradise is one that got better and we can talk a little more about that if you want, but The Alternative Factor uh, was one that started out very good and then script-wise got worse and worse and worse, so bad that um, the uh, the guest star dropped out the first day of production, John Drew Barrymore, uh, who's a big star in TV at that point and, and movies and uh, a really uh, a well-respected actor, Drew Barrymore's dad. And uh, he was supposed to play Lazarus in The Alternative Factor, and he came into to makeup, sat down and read the latest draft of the script and said, this is not, What I agreed to do. This is not the role that I said I wanted to play. And he got up out of makeup and he left and he didn't come back. And they they were filming. Uh, They were filming scenes that he wasn't in that day. And uh, he was supposed to join the production the next day. So he was in there getting his wardrobe and his beard and everything done. And he walks out. So now they're scrambling to get a replacement actor. And uh, late in the day, and some people say it was as late as 11 o'clock at night. They finally got a hold of Robert Brown, who William Shatner suggested because uh, William Shatner had made a, a TV pilot with Rob, Robert Brown a few years earlier, and said, "Here's somebody who's really good, and here's somebody who could play this part." And so they got a hold of him and said, "Come on down to Desilu tomorrow morning. Uh, we want to talk to you about doing this this role." And he hadn't seen Star Trek; it had just premiered a week or two earlier. And he drove in, and uh, Gene Roddenberry meets him and says, okay, let me take you to makeup. He says, what do you mean? Take me to makeup. And he says, well, you know, I've got the script here. You've seen the script. He says, I haven't seen the script. What script? He says, well, here it is. I'll get you a copy of the script, and we're going to put you makeup, and you can read it as you're sitting in makeup. And he says, I haven't even seen the show. I don't even know what it's about. I, I, you know, I, I, hadn't, I don't know I was going to do this. I thought I was just coming in to talk about doing it. And he says, oh, no, no, we need you in front of the camera at 8 a.m. And (laughs) this is like, what, 6.30 in the morning or 7 in the morning. And so he sits there, and he's reading the script and trying to figure out what warp drive is and what a transporter is and all these things. And he's playing two different characters, good Lazarus and bad Lazarus, and trying to make sense of this. And he gets in front of the camera, and everybody's rushing because they're behind schedule because of what happened with John Drew Barrymore. And it just spiraled out of control. But the problems actually began before that, which is why John, John Drew Barrymore left, is because the script got destroyed. How? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I purposely paused so you could say, tell us more, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you mean it got destroyed? Why would they destroy a script? Well, that's the what, for me, the really interesting thing. Uh, because when you see uh, this is a show that was an excellent show let's face it we you know was I think one of the best shows ever made certainly the best show at that time I think the best written show uh, because Gene Roddenberry was so determined that every episode would have a a strong theme and make a statement and you had such a great cast such great writers and um, doing things that had never been done before on TV and they had to invent everything all the special effects and everything they were doing so everybody would would go into each episode with the agenda to make it as good as it could possibly be. And and especially you look at that first season. I like the second season even more personally, but that first season, come on, it's just one classic episode after another, and then suddenly the alternative factor. And you go, what the heck happened? <laughs> this isn't working. You feel it right in the teaser. And, and it just it kind of just gets worse and worse. And... And uh, I never saw a TOS episode I didn't love, and I even love that one, but but compared to the others, you say, this is just not working. And what happened was uh, they brought in Don Ingalls, who was a terrific writer and a good friend of Gene Roddenberry's, and they had worked together many times on other shows. And um, uh, Don Ingalls was like the associate producer and script consultant on Half Gun Will Travel, where Gene was their head writer, did more scripts than any other writer on that series. And um, they both worked together as uh, uh, police officers in LAPD before they each got into their TV writing careers and so on. So they were good friends. And they brought him in and he had an idea they were just fascinated with about, uh, it was basically Moby Dick, uh, about an obsessed person uh, determined to chase down and kill this, this thing. And in Moby Dick, of course, it's a captain trying to kill this whale who had bitten off his his leg or his arm, whichever it was. And um, in this one, you find out that he's chasing the alternate version of himself. And, uh, And then we find out that that alternate version is actually the good guy. And the bad guy, the crazy guy, is the one that they met first, and he's the one who seduces Kirk and the entire crew into believing in his goal and his mission. And then they find out that he's the crazy one and if if he succeeds, it's gonna destroy the universe. And so that's an interesting story right there. But beyond that, so he was a much more charismatic character in those early drafts. He didn't come off crazy. Where in in the one that was made, he's he's nuts the minute you see him. And so you can't believe anybody would even wanna have anything to do with this guy, the way he's acting. But in the earlier drafts, he was a very charismatic character, and he falls. And this one woman falls in love with him, uh, uh, Lieutenant Masters, I think her name is uh, Janet McLaughlin, played her in the show. And there were love scenes between these two characters, and he uses her to get the dilithium crystals, which he needs to power up the time portal or, 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 or multi-dimensional portal that gets him to the other dimension of the universe. And she follows him into the portal portal, and gets lost within that chamber, and Kirk has to go in there to rescue her and pull her out and, and close the portal for all time to save both sides of the universe. And the good Lazarus, who he meets, helps him do this, even though the good Lazarus will then spend all eternity uh, fighting the bad one at each other's throats. So when you pitch it that way, it's, it's a very strong story. And that's how it read beautifully written. So what went wrong? Why would they take that and turn it into what was filmed? Well, they booked John Drew Barrymore, which was really a great accomplishment for them. That would have got them a lot of attention, big star, and so forth. It was like getting Ricardo Montalban when they did Khan, and Robert Walker when they did uh, Charlie X. These were all all very well-respected actors at that time and who didn't do a lot of TV. They were mostly doing movies. And uh, same thing with John Drew Barrymore. And, uh, and then they booked Janet McLaughlin, who was an up-and-coming uh, black actress who was very well-known on the stage but hadn't done much TV. And so this was going to be the first interracial love scene, which Star Trek ended up doing three years later. But they would have done it in 1966 or early 67. And uh, uh, that would have really, really been something. Well, NBC approved it all the way along. They loved it. As a matter of fact, Stan Robertson said, this is a great script. And oh, you got John Drew Barrymore. That's fantastic. We're really going to promote this one. And then they found out uh, right as the production was beginning that the actress that they had cast was black. And they said, well, you can't have these scenes with him and her kissing and making out and doing all this stuff because our Southern affiliates won't air this. You know, they, nobody attested it at that point, and and NBC was very open-minded. Stan Robertson was black, you know, so they, it's not that they were any racism going on there. It was just it's a business, and we have our southern affiliates to think about, and are they going to carry this? And so at the last minute, the decision was made. You have to either get rid of the actress or take the love scenes out of the episode. And Gene Coon zigged when he should have zagged. He should have replace Janet McLaughlin and put her in another episode. You know, giving her a kill fee and put her in another episode a couple weeks down the road. But he had very strong ethics and he was very offended by the whole thing. His secretary, Andy Richardson, was black and, and, uh, and so Gene Kuhn was very uh, offended by this and he said, I'm not going to drop her from the episode. So he took the, uh, the love scenes out. Well that gutted the story. And it made this character that Janet McLaughlin was playing made no sense. You watch that and you go, who is she? Why isn't Scotty in this episode? Why why are they saying she's running engineering or whatever? It just makes no sense. You don't know who she is and why she's there and there's no payoff to her character. And there's all these scenes of Robert Brown falling off rocks over and over and over again because they had to make up for the scenes they pulled out where Kirk goes into the tunnel and tries to get her out, which is taken out of the script now, because like, there'd be no reason for her to go into this tunnel if she hadn't fallen in love with the guy, and they took the whole love story out. So the entire plot got gutted. The script got gutted, got destroyed. And John Drew Barrymore was reading this and said, I'm not going to do this. And so that caused the domino effect. And then one thing after another just went wrong, went wrong, went wrong. The the director starts having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like and when they finally ended finished it nobody wanted to put it on the air uh NBC and and Roddenberry and Kuhn and everybody were in agreement that this episode isn't going to help us any this is not working but they had to put it on the air cuz the studio had spent a lot of money on it so they s- scheduled it to be the last episode of the season bury it in a sense but uh, uh, The City on the Edge of Forever and uh, Operation Annihilate, the last two produced, weren't ready in time, so Alternative Factor ended up being the third to last episode aired, but it was filmed in the middle of the season, so they pushed it back uh, a good 10, 11, 12 notches in the schedule, as it was, and they wanted to push it all the way back. If they could have their way, they would have pushed it off the of the cliff. And it's interesting to read book two because they keep referring back to the, the, this, the episode when they do Mirror, Mirror. Bob Justman writes Kuhn a memo, and he says, I like this script. This is an interesting story, but it's a little bit like the alternative factor with there being an alternative universe. And he says, and we all know how that one turned out. So there was an episode, they, you know when you watch it and think, this isn't very good, well, you, you read their memos, and you know that they felt the same way, but there was nothing they could do.
0: So now that's okay it's interesting that they would even i mean that they would hate this episode so much that they would want it to not even exist uh you don't really hear yeah. about that too much in in television um were there any other episodes like that or is that uh that pretty much their their biggest failure on the whole
2: they, there were a couple others. That that was certainly the biggest failure of the first season. As a matter of fact, there were only two episodes in the first season that they were uh, unhappy with. Bob Justman, who was a little more critical, there were a few he didn't like. He didn't like <laughs> The Devil in the Dark, and, and he didn't like Aaron of Mercy, and he didn't give Aaron of Mercy a repeat on the network. He He was the one who chose which episodes would repeat and which ones wouldn't, and he didn't particularly care for that episode. I could never get him to tell me why. I mean, That's the one that introduced the Klingons. I think he felt Kirk was acting out of character in that one, or Kirk was acting, because there's a memo from him saying Kirk's acting uh, like uh, he's got too much testosterone, he's acting like uh, he's too hot, hot-tempered and he's not the level-headed captain that we ever saw. He keeps wanting to get in pushing matches with the Klingons and everything, so he had a problem with that one. But, um, but the one they all were in agreement on, besides alternative factor during season one, was court-martial. Now, there's an episode that most of the fans like, and yeah. I think you guys like. Yeah,
1: I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, that. it's
2: an interesting one, Captain Kirk on trial, doing uh, uh, the Kane mutiny in outer space, and that's how it was pitched. And and so it's definitely got its, its good points. But again, if you could have read the early drafts of that one, uh, Don Mankiewicz who came in and did the script, and he was a famous writer, and they were happy to get him, but he was from New York. He lived in New York, so he hadn't seen the show, and it was a long-distance relationship. They couldn't meet with him. They had to do it by telephone and letter, and it's hard to get scripts written that way. So that was a little bit of a problem, but uh, the original script that he came up with was way different than what we saw filmed in that episode. The the character on the ship, Finney, um, who has... a, a Uh, who's been uh, uh, reduced in rank by Kirk because he made a mistake. Um, He's the one who programs the computer and the computer has started to develop a personality And, and it likes Finney because Finney is its friend. Finney is the one that feeds it information. So it's become bonded with Finney and when Kirk demotes him, the computer decides it wants to take Kirk out. So the computer of the Enterprise, in a sense, goes after Captain Kirk on its own. And, uh, and Finney is jettisoned into outer space and uh, is stuck on a, an asteroid somewhere. He's not hiding on the ship like in the produced episode. He's out of it. They'll go looking for him later. but. Uh, but the ship is smashed to pieces from this asteroid storm and it comes into the star base and it has to go into dry dock to get repairs and it's severely damaged. And Kirk beams down there and he's suddenly arrested and put on trial because the computer records on the Enterprise show that he jettisoned uh, the pod that Finney was in when there was no reason to do it. And, uh, and the computer even offers evidence showing that Kirk was out to get Finney and so Kirk is charged with murder, in a sense. And Spock ends up taking uh, a shuttlecraft uh, and going in search of Finney so he can bring Finney back to prove that Kirk didn't kill him. But even with that, they have to decide, well, why is there this evidence against Kirk? And then they find out that the computer wants Kirk dead because of what Kirk did to Finney. Now, that is a really interesting story. That's incredible. <laughs> and But they couldn't do it because they said, well, first of all, what's it going to cost to smash up the Enterprise? What's it going to cost to build a space dock to put the Enterprise in? Well, we finally saw that in Star Trek The Motion Picture, but they couldn't do that in 1966. I mean, these opticals were costing a fortune, and nobody had ever seen anything like them. I mean, the Enterprise was almost 12 feet long, and it was a big, big miniature and But then you'd have to build a giant space dock for it to go into and everything else. And then an asteroid for Spock to go to to search for Finney. And it was just this huge production. And, and you just couldn't do that. And on top of that, Gene Roddenberry, and this was probably the only other mistake he made during the first season, uh, counting Mantrap, is that uh, he... Uh, he would love the idea of Kirk being on trial and he said what do we need all this science fiction stuff for uh, let's keep it just a military trial because Gene had been in the military he'd been a, a, a pilot in World War II and so he, he really thought it would be interesting to see how Kirk would deal with being on trial and he felt all this science fiction stuff and the fact that the computer's trying to kill him and everything else detracted from the courtroom drama of Kirk of being a, a man of great honor and prestige being reduced and ridiculed uh, by his peers and put on trial. And so Roddenberry said, let's calm this down and let's make it just more of a straightforward trial. Well, it's, it's, it's good and it's interesting and people like the episode, but you, when you know what it could have been, you, you go, man, <laughs> if they could have just found a way to have done that. But the other reason they had a problem with court-martial is is, uh, forgetting what they had given up. Uh, The ending really bothered a lot of people on the staff, including Don Mankiewicz, because uh, in in the script they bring Jamie, the daughter, back up to the ship, and she's the one who talks her father into giving up, and they even filmed that. You can see some uh, stills from that. I think we have one in the book, and there's others on... Uh, websites like Star Trek History.com and Star Trek Prop Authority.com in color. You see some of these uh, stills from the missing scenes. And um, they uh, uh, they cut that out because the episode was running long, and so they replaced it with just some voiceover Kirk saying, Well, and I went up the Jeffrey's tube and I hooked this wire into that wire and saved the ship, and then I ran down and I fought with Finney in the engineering deck, and there's the end. And it was, it, it was a it gave you a little physical thing in the end, a little action, but it didn't. Uh, wasn't as uh, satisfying as what was in the script. The script that they filmed and the scenes that they actually filmed. So there were some scenes taken out of that, that that could have made that episode even better. But again, you you're living within the restraints of TV. So the first part of it got jettisoned pun intended, <laughs> since Finney got jettisoned. The first part, the script got jettisoned because uh, of budget concerns, and Roddenberry's desire just to do a straightforward courtroom story, and and the ending that was filmed got jettisoned because uh, the episode was running long, and it had to be cut down to fit the spot. You don't have that problem anymore. If you're making Breaking Bad and you want the episode to be five minutes longer, you know, Showtime and HBO and those type of channels are going to say, fine, let it go five minutes longer. Don't take out the best part. But when you're on networks that run commercials and it's got to end at exactly, you know, and back then, 8 9.30 at night, you know, on Thursday, you can't have an extra five minutes. Yeah. So it suffered a lot in editing as well as rewriting. So it wasn't the episode that it could have been, and they knew that. We didn't know that. I liked that episode, too. I thought the ending was a little clumsy. I thought that white sound device was a little silly. <laughs> Why couldn't they just throw a switch that would, uh, cut, would eliminate the bridge sounds from the rest of the ship instead of walking over and putting this thing up against each guy's heart and saying, okay, now we can't hear your heartbeat, now we can't hear your heartbeat. There were a lot of things in that thing that, that scientifically were kind of silly. But, but it was still a good episode from an emotional point of view and a performance point of view for Shatner and, and so forth. But when you look at what it could have been, and the staff knew what it could have been, it just broke their hearts.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Roddenberry wasn't wrong in that a courtroom drama could stand on its own, but to get rid of all this stuff, which sounds like it would have been really cool, is a mistake.
2: Yeah. And they didn't rerun that episode on NBC either. And that's how you can find out right off the bat, because I tell you in the book which episodes get rerun and which don't, I give you all the air dates, I give you the budgets, I give you everything, but uh, you'll see the, um, oh, the 10 or so episodes from season one that did not get repeated, because they had 30 episodes, 29 episodes, and there's only 52 weeks in the year, and there were a couple weeks that it was preempted, so they can't rerun them all on the network. So which ones are they not going to rerun? And you'll see which ones didn't get replayed. And the reason why, uh, one of them was because NBC refused to show it again, and that was The Enemy Within. He said, we are not going to let Kirk rape this woman again. <laughs> we didn't like it the first time, and we're not going to let we're not going to show it again in trying to rape his yeoman. Are you crazy? <laughs> we're a family network. You can't do this. But all the rest of the ones that didn't get repeat airings were uh, Bob Justman's choice. And uh, he just said, I don't like this one. And he didn't like court-martial, nor did anybody else, nor did Mark Daniels, who directed it, who referred to it as a dog, and, and so forth. So he said, thank God that one's over with. When they finished shooting it, uh, nobody was having a good time during that episode. So, so, but even when they didn't like it, we did, because that's how good the show was. Yeah. So it's nice when people like your rejects. Yeah. I wish people liked my rejects. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you make like one of the best shows of all time. You know. Yeah, so. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so you've got uh, book one is out now and. There is a, a Kindle version being released soon, too. Is that right? Yeah,
2: Kindle will be out, I think, this week, finally. Man, it's been a slow, slow journey here. <laughs> uh, and so that's finally going to be out. Uh, could be any day now uh, up on Amazon.com, and there'll be an ebook version available at the publisher's site, jacobsbrownmediagroup.com as if anybody's going to remember an email address is that long, a website address is that long, (laughs) jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. But you can get an e-book there, I think, starting tomorrow, and Kindle a few days later. So uh, those are coming up, and book two will be out uh, February 1st, maybe even a a smidge earlier. It was supposed to be out now, but we, we pushed it back because we've been getting such a great response on book one and such tremendous reviews, and everything that uh, I think the publisher decided to torture the fans and make them wait a little longer for it.
0: But it, it, it is
2: coming. It, it's finished, and it's, it should be out soon, and Walter Koenig writes the foreword for that one because Season 2 introduces Chekhov.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, and uh, where, 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 where can people find you on the Internet? Anywhere?
2: Well, sure. They can find me just uh, by going com. I have my own website, so m a r c c u s h m a n dot com. You can find me there, and there's even a way to send emails to me there. And uh, uh, the book, uh, there's excerpts from the book uh, at jacobsbrownmediagroup dot com. Uh, I think four or five now. We're they're going to be posting a couple more excerpts coming up uh, from different chapters, so you can read about it. Lots of pictures, lots of trivia, and uh, Geek Magazine this week. Uh, their December issue will be out any day now and there's a big um, article on the books in there and uh, I haven't seen it yet but I know that it's in there and there's an excerpt from book two for the episode Who Mourns for Adonis will be in there with
0: pictures sweet can't wait and uh, we we will definitely have you back on as we get closer to, to book two coming out and can't wait to talk to you about that too
1: yes thank you so much a lot
2: of fun love talking to you
1: Thanks. Wow, Mark Cushman is so informative about everything. I mean, he should be. He literally wrote the book on it.
0: Yeah, he really knows his stuff. It's kind of, I I, I can only imagine uh, how much information he hasn't fit in that book. You know what I
1: mean? I'm, I mean, he only prints, like, the littlest excerpts of these memos, and I'm sure that each of, like, Bob Justman's memos is comedy, classic gold, mm-hmm. and should probably be bound, like, photocopied and printed in a binder.
0: Yep, I would read
1: that, for sure. Well, it was fun talking with, uh, with Mark today, but uh, that's just one of the Trek topics that we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. The Trouble
0: with Tribbles Commentary. Something which I think really gets overlooked in this episode. You know, everyone, you know, talks about how funny it is and how the Tribbles are so cute and all this stuff. But really, it's political satire. Earl Grey.
2: Catherine Pulaski.
0: And there will be times when I honestly will just forget that there was another doctor besides Crusher because... It's really, she's just one of the seven.
2: I thought there were 12 doctors. Oh, wait, never mind. We're talking, never mind. Sorry, I was thinking of something else.
0: <laughs> I see what you
1: did there.
2: The Orb.
0: The Minion Invasion Tactics. And Bashir says, look, I know what the orders say, but he attacked Chief O'Brien and we have rules against that sort of thing here. So I think that they're trying to figure out, yes, the Federation has rules, but how much are they willing to bend the rules depending on how we push their buttons?
2: The Ready Room. Find your mission,
0: you're three.
1: I, I, I literally wrote the words to a piece of the action the day before I recorded it, which was about two days before we <laughs> sent the album off to be mastered. To the journey!
0: Season one marathon.
1: I mean, I do see what you mean. Like you said, the A-plot is absolutely boring, but we get a lot of cool moments in here, and we get a lot of introductions. And so for that, it's a good episode to watch in a marathon just because you're introduced to all these cool things. Warp 5. Warp
0: <laughs> 5. Horror on Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Isn't
1: it interesting on in this episode when Reed is being inhabited? The first thing he does is go and hits on all the women. When the first, when <laughs> is being inhabited, yeah. the first thing he does is go and eats everything in sight. Commentary: Trek stars. Demon
2: with a glass hand. I wonder what audiences at the time thought of it. You know, this is a time when Beverly Hillbillies was probably the most popular TV show. I just can't imagine what they w- must have thought. Uh, watching this thing. Literary Treks. David Mike, A Ceremony of Losses. And then we color-coded it, and we started lining up dates and uh, events and saying, well, this book runs from this date to this date. These events in this book happen on these dates, so that if you're writing this scene in book two, you know that it happens exactly, let's say, 11 days after this event in book one. And that sort of meticulous down to the you know fine detail granular planning became absolutely essential.
1: And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek Talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom. You can stream and download files from the website. Just visit Trek.fm slash PD for podcast directory to get all the links.
0: So we got another email from Daniel Uh, in California. He uh, wrote to us earlier, and now he's writing to us again. He says, Hi, I've really been enjoying Standard Orbit, and having David Rossi on was especially excellent, both to have him talk about the remastering in general, and he's also just an interesting speaker who holds your interest. Overall, the show has been great, and I've really been enjoying it. The only thing I'd say is that so far, I think the show has been skewing very movie-heavy, And I think it has actually been a little light on actual TOS TV show content. I think that could be balanced out a little more evenly. Thanks for writing to us, Daniel. Again, we really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, he's probably right.
1: Yeah, I can see that.
0: The last week we had the triples. This week we've got Mark Cushman. That's like all TOS. And uh, next week... Well, next week we're going to be talking about a movie, but not a movie you've seen. So <laughs> I don't know where that falls. But maybe if we keep it like make sure we keep it like 3 to 1 max. Right. That's probably good, right?
1: Well, our problem is the we've been doing the characters and and they really don't get their continuity arcs until the movies. Yeah. I I think that maybe, and you and I will freely admit that we're, we've seen the movies a lot more than we've seen the
0: entire series. We're children of the 80s, you know? Yes. What are you going to do? Sorry. But yeah, we will definitely, we will definitely work on it. Daniel has a good point there, and uh, we will take it under advisement. And thanks for listening. (laughs) I didn't even mean that. But
1: uh <laughs> no, I'll cut all that out. I no, just, you can leave I it. I definitely won't. <laughs> no, no, my insane laughter is going to be.
0: <clears throat> oh, and if you comment Jesus. on Twitter and say, you know, hey, I, I listened to your show, and I respond with, "Thanks for listening." I, I'm sorry. I'll try to be more creative. Maybe I'll start saying things like thanks, no thanks for listening or, uh, you know, why are you listening? Don't you have anything better to do? But right now, all I can come up <laughs> with is thanks for listening. So uh, cut me some slack, you know?
1: And you, we are grateful for the listeners. So feel free to contact us. Uh, there's a few ways to do it. You can go to uh, trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. You can choose to send a show and choose standard orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. That's what Daniel did. And you can also use the tab on the right-hand side of the page and send us a voicemail using your webcam's microphone, which we might play instead of read aloud. And you can talk to us and other listeners on our forums at trek.fm. forums And in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com. And on Twitter under username trek.fm. Mike, where can people find you on Twitter so that you can say thanks for listening?
0: Yeah, well, if you just uh, do a search for thanks for listening, you will see that all of my tweets will come up, and <laughs> uh, they, they will be the handle there is atcomtrackstars. Is oh, or you can find me on Trek FM doing commentary track stars with my friend Max, or you can find me on my website, uh, commentarytrackstars.com, where I do uh, commentary track stars off-topic with Max and our friend Brandon.
1: And you can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, spell it out. And uh, you can also hear me on other shows around the network, including The Ready Room, where we, uh, Chris and I, did an interview with Five Year Mission, a Star Trek band. They're writing songs for each episode of the original series. And they're from Indianapolis, so I get to see them every so often. And they're a ton of fun, and you need to check out their stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I had a friend from high school who he he sent me a tweet, and he's like, have you heard of Five-Year Mission? And I'm like, boom, check this out. And he's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, <laughs> also, I think we might have mentioned this up at the front, but uh, if you're looking for more Mark Cushman and you want to hear – uh him talk about his his book in depth uh you can go over to commentary trek stars and there's a two-part series there where we talk to him and uh the original series uh producer John D F Black and his wife Mary about uh these are the voyages and the making of the original series so so Drew you know um there's this show it's called Star Trek The Next Generation you might have heard of it
1: I've I've maybe
0: Okay, well, Mark actually wrote for that show, and he he did a uh, an episode called Sarek. You've heard of uh-huh. Sarek before, of course, from yeah, the original Sarek series, is Spock's, dad, Spock's obviously. dad, obviously. Yeah. Well, the story continues after Star Trek Six, and Sarek he goes on to uh, the Enterprise and has an adventure with Picard and all this other crazy Who? stuff. This guy, he's bald. It's too complicated. You can't explain. He's one of the X Men, but regardless, it doesn't matter. Okay. So 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 yeah, Mark did did an episode of Star Trek, Sarek, and there's a
1: book. Was it this book that I is this is, this, is it this book that I found on Audible called Sarek?
0: Because it's got Kirk on the cover. No, it's not that book. But what is that oh. book? Because it sounds like something interesting. I mean, as far as like track records are concerned, things named Sarek tend to be really good.
1: Well, this one, uh, it's written by A.C. Crispin and narrated by Nick Sullivan. And it's about Spock's mom, Amanda, is dying. And he has to go back to Vulcan, but of course he's called away and the the Klingons are trying to destroy the Federation. Apparently only Sarek can
0: save the day. Sounds pretty cool. And as a Trek FM listener, you could check it out for free. That's right.
1: Audible is the sponsor of Standard Orbit, which makes it possible for us to bring you the show each week. Uh, Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible's the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, Audible has something for everybody. There are numerous classic TOS books on Audible, as well as some of the all-time favorites like Prime Directive and Federation and Sarek. As a Trek him listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today and catch up on all those classic books you've yet to read or that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash FM and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash FM. And we thank you and Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. And if you'd like to personally support Standard Orbit, the network, and our programming, please visit trek.fm slash donate. We have eight alien-themed badges and art prints as a thank you for your contribution, and you can mix and match badges and art prints. There are different levels of donation to choose from, and your contributions help us cover the cost of production, storage, and bandwidth needed to bring Standard Orbit and our other shows to
0: you each week. Here, here's a fun little tidbit for those people who are are still with us here on on this on this broadcast, or what podcast, I guess it would be. My wife and I, you know, as couples do, have often talked about potential baby names should the occasion arise, and probably the biggest argument that we've had is over whether or not to name a kid Sarek. And I'm not the one who wants to name it Sarek. So, (laughs) there you go. It's a good name. It's a strong name. It is. It's very logical.
1: (laughs) And with that, I'm going to thank you all for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landrieu. Mr.
2: Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead. Walk factor one sir